Oh, am I? Okay, today we have Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 204. Before we start, I have a serious announcement. Today, Emery, my co-laborer in the Lord, told me that if I beat him arm wrestling, he'd give me his hat. So, I appreciate that very much, Emery, and... I have to say to all of you listening today or watching this that it took several seconds to defeat him. So, here we go. Hebrews 2020. We have to have some fun, so I hope that all of you who know Emery will torment him endlessly about this. Father, we thank you for the joy of the Lord that is our strength. We pray that as a result of our meeting today and as a result of this message, that all who hear it will go away from the message with the joy of the Lord being their strength, being our strength. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to deal today with the two-stage not three, two-stage rocket analogy. This is an analogy that's available to us on the level of our own time in the 21st century, which was not necessarily available to the writer of Hebrews in the first century, possibly in the mid-60s AD. They spoke with liturgical language in Hebrews, cultic language as we call it. They spoke with judicial type language, financial language, military and athletic language, agricultural analogies, but we have the rocket analogy. And today I want to simplify our rocket analogy to from a third three-stage stacked analogy to a two-staged stacked rocket analogy. We're going to begin with 7.20 of Hebrews, and none of this happened without the taking of an oath. That is, a permanent priest forever was ordained and appointed as a priest accompanied by an oath. No oath-taking ever took place in the ordination of Aaron and his sons or of any of the Levitical priesthoods. This strengthens the comparison of the priest forever with that of Levitical priests, strengthening the contrast in favor of the priest forever, of course. So none of this happened. That is the appointing of a new hope, a new priest, whereby we may draw near to God. None of this happened without the taking of an oath. For on the one hand, speaking of the Levitical priesthood of Aaron and his sons and descendants, men became priests without an oath. But on the other hand, verse 21, he, Jesus, became a priest. I'm adding this in the, to give the sense. I have to give the sense, and to do so, 
I've put two bracketed comments in here. One, bracket, Jesus, close bracket. Two, bracket, became a priest, close bracket. So here's the translation again, Hebrews 7.20. None of this happened without the taking of an oath, exclamation point. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath. But on the other hand, he, Jesus, became a priest through, or we could say, or with the oath of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You'll note again in this verse that after the order of Melchizedek is omitted because the stage of the rocket called the Melchizedek stage has been unlinked and let go. In fact, Psalm 110.4 is treated in a way in Hebrews. It's almost like you take a tube of toothpaste and squeeze it until the very last bit is, is, emerges from it. The very last bit is the word forever. And that's what we're left with in Hebrews 7.24.25. But we'll get to that. We're back right now with a very important idea of the oath or the oath-taking, a concept that entered Hebrews in the exegesis of Psalm 95, 8 through 11, Septuagint 94, 8 through 11, in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 7, a long exegesis on an oath that God swore in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest, and why. And that concept of the oath and that treatment of the oath is more fully developed with the oath-fortified promise to Abraham in Hebrews 6, 13 to 18, and then the oath-fortified oracle to Jesus, which formally acclaimed him to be a priest forever, Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. Now we've come to understand, and it's worth remembering and recalling, we've come to understand that there is an intimate connection between the oath-fortified promise of God to Abraham regarding an innumerable seed or offspring and the oath-fortified declaration by God to Jesus, you are a priest forever. There's a connection between the oath-fortified promise to Abraham and the oath-fortified oracle to Jesus that we have seen. In other words, this priest forever by a divine oath is the single inclusive representative of the innumerable seed of Abraham which is all of humanity enveloped in Christ, Galatians 3.16. Now the author now makes the striking point that none of the priests or the archpriests appointed by the law were made priests with an oath attached or with an oath that preceded their appointment or ordination. The contrast between the priests of Aaron's order and this priest forever becomes stronger because of this, and the superiority of the forever priest, shown by the fact that his appointment was fortified, so to speak, by a divine oath, once again strengthens the contrast in favor of the forever priest. We notice that only a priest forever is mentioned, again here in 721, 
The Melchizedek rocket module has been unlinked and has fallen away. And please consider that, fallen away. An oath speaks of unchangeability, of immutability. No such immutability was declared for the Levitical priesthood or for the ordination and appointment of any priest or archpriest of that order. The backward look at the oath is followed almost immediately by a forward look at the new covenant in this homily as it unfolds. The better hope links with a better covenant of which Jesus is the guarantor. Hebrews 7.22 then, by so much then, Jesus was made the guarantor of a better covenant. Guarantor, oath, guarantee, surety, pledge, certainty. This theme is elaborated in Hebrews 8.6 through 10.17. So we're on the verge of another vast theme. The reader, whether ancient or modern, gets the sense of a sea change, that is a marked transformation in God's plan caused by the Christ event. A change of priesthood, a change of the law, a change of the covenant. The new priest, the new law, the new covenant, all signaled the making of all things new, the new creation of all things by God. The question I had and have, but I think I know the answer, will the initial readers adapt to this radical move and move with it? Did they is a better way to put it. History seems to give us an affirmative response to this question because it bears witness to the escape of all the Christians in Jerusalem to Pella, P-E-L-L-A, in A.D. 66. In other words, historians who record the conflagration of the seven-year event of the Great Tribulation between 66 and 73 A.D., Reveal that not a single Christian was within the environs of Jerusalem when it was besieged and destroyed by the Roman legions and their allies. History seems then to give us an affirmative response to the question, did the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews heed those words and warnings? Because, again, history bears witness to the escape of all the Christians in Jerusalem to Pella, the mountain regions surrounding Jerusalem in A.D. 66, just before the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman legions, which ultimately led to the catastrophe of A.D. 70, August of A.D. 70, including the destruction of the temple, and the termination of all Levitical sacrifices. Please notice that. With the destruction of the second temple, the restored temple, the refurbished temple by Herod in Jerusalem, was also the cessation of all the Levitical sacrifices. That which was refused 
to be let go was let go forcibly. It seems that the Christians in Jerusalem heeded the warnings of their Messiah also in Matthew 24, 15 through 28. And they may also have paid heed to Hebrews or at least its essential message. Attentiveness, here's a principle for on the level of our time, atlat. Attentiveness to the scriptures leads to salvation in many senses and on many levels and at many times, James 1.21. The rocket analogy that we spoke of, the two-stage rocket analogy that we're dealing with, the rocket analogy can remain deployed as it was for Melchizedek and the priest forever. The rocket analogy can also remain deployed for the priests of the Levitical order, just as it pertained to Melchizedek. So we can and should at this point simplify our rocket metaphor to that of a two-stage rather than a three-stage rocket. In the two-stage rocket, the first stage's engine ignites at launch and burns through its fuel. It is then detached, having become useless and dead. Now the module that has been unlinked and let go in this continuing analogy or extended metaphor is the Levitical priesthood and the shadow sacrifices they offered, while the second stage remains in flight. The second stage being in this simplified analogy, the second stage being the priest who lives forever and the sacrifice that he offers, which is efficacious for as long as this priest lives. The stacked two-stage rocket analogy, these Modules are stacked on top of each other, that's all that means. The stacked two-stage rocket analogy pertains throughout much of the Hebrews' homily, in, in fact, with a lot of other things. In fact, this is a curious thing, look all the way up to Hebrews 10.9b, the second part. It says, we have this curious statement here, it says, he takes away the first to establish the second. If we wanted to bring this into our rocket analogy, the first stage is detached and let go, that the second stage can be established in its orbit or in its mission. He takes away the first to establish the second. An ere to proton Hina to Deuteron stese. That's my mispronounced attempt at the Greek of that phrase. He takes away the first, to proton, to establish the second, to Deuteron. This statement, he takes away the first to establish the second, can apply to the first being the first priesthood and the second, the forever priest. It can also apply to the whole protocol involving animal sacrifices and the once and for all and forever efficacious offering of the forever priest. He takes away the first 
protocol of animal sacrifices that he may establish forever. The second, the efficacious offering of the forever priest. It can apply to the law versus the act of God in Christ in the Christ event in Romans 8.3. We've just seen that the law is said to be weak and useless in completing anything. The two-stage rocket analogy can even apply to the old and new covenants. He takes away the first that he might establish the second, the new. And that will be made clear in the next chapters. So the rocket analogy is proving to be a fruitful one and a sustained one. But for now, let's do a retroactive or a retrospective view of the rocket analogy. I didn't use it, I don't think, in Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. I'm going to read the whole passage and then let you kind of figure out how we're going to put the rocket analogy into this, and then I'll show you how we do it. Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. Therefore, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, let's be brought to completion, not again laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about ritual washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment of the age to come, and we'll do this if God allows. For it would be impossible in the case of a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had experienced the heavenly gift, and would become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, get it? Stage of the rocket that falls away. To renew them to repentance while they're crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. For ground that drinks, he then puts an agricultural analogy to this that we'll look at briefly. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, it is useless, about to be cursed. We could say like the fig tree in Jesus' case. And it will be burned at the end. Now, in this passage, the first stage of the rocket, which has been propelled toward completion or perfection, consists of the, quote, merely anticipative word about the Messiah. And it consists of the foundation, as it's called, of repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about ritual washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment in the age to come. That's the first stage. That's the one that is detached and that falls away. There's no successful propulsion onto completion of the rocket's mission if this stage is not detached and allowed to fall away. If it is not allowed to do this, the danger is that the second stage will also fall away and never go on to the completion of its mission. In fact, the Greek verb translated to fall away, the Greek word that is translated as to fall away, para pipto, P-A-R-A-P-I-P, 
P-T-O, to fall away. Means, like the falling off and detachment and falling away of a stage of the rocket. It's similar in its meaning. It's used in Hebrews 6.6. Consider in the context the verb parapipto, which means fall away. Hebrews 6.4. For it would be impossible in the case of a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had, been ex who had experienced the heavenly gift, and who had become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, to renew them to repentance while they're crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. Falling away, then, is the perfect word for the action of the first stage of the rocket in our extended metaphor. The readers are urged not to fall away with the falling away of the first order of priests and the system of sacrifices which had now proven to be weak and useless compared with the second order of priest which consists of one priest only, the only mediator between the one God and all of humanity, the God-man, Christ Jesus. In fact, the agricultural analogy of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, for land that has become useless and which had come close to be cursed and its thorns and thistles needing to be burned, is also strongly supportive of our analogy. If the writer had written when the rocket analogy was available to him, he might have said, don't fall away with the first stage of the rocket and become useless, merely floating away in space like a drifter. This is exactly what the exhortation is about in this homily. Go on to completion. And that's possible only by drawing near to God through this new forever priest and his once and for all and forever offering and sacrifice and not through the old priesthood and the animal shadow sacrifices which could bring no one to completion and no one to perfection and therefore had to be detached and fall away. He takes away the first to establish the second. So why are you still with the first that's falling away? That's what it means to fall away. To fall away is to go with the first instead of with the second. The warning here is against disapproval. Something that even Paul feared for himself as a preacher. Same word, adokimos. 1 Corinthians 9.27. On the historical level, and we use here the theological functional specialty of history, which is very important in the interpretation of Hebrews. On the historical level, there's another application. Because on the historical level, the warning is against going with the detached and discarded stage and even being in old Jerusalem when the fiery destruction comes on the old temple 
and the entire abrogated system of sacrifices. As we've established before, there is no threat here of an after-death torment in hell. Even though a very stern warning is given regarding the dire personal and historical consequences of staying with that which God has detached and let go of in the fulfillment of his purpose for them. You want to illustration that sticks today think of the dire consequences to you and the dire consequences to me and to us for example of remaining in the old self which we are to acknowledge instead was crucified with Christ the dire consequences of remaining in the old self Paul put it this way to be carnally minded that is, to think with the mind of the old self, is death. Whatever death means in our life, and while we're still living physically. Put Romans 8, 6a together with 1 Timothy 5, 6b, the woman, the example of the woman like Jezebel, who lives in fulfilling her lower desires, she doesn't even know it. She's dead while she's supposedly living. Same with a man who does it. Same with any of us who does this. The dire consequences of remaining in the old self, which at the cross was detached and falls away. To be in the old self is to fall away from the grace of God, the experience of the grace of God, the experience of life and livingness in future world in the present time. Those consequences aren't fun. They may seem to be for a little while, but, well, we do reap. Hebrews 7, 23 then, going on, moving slightly forward. On top of this, on the one hand, many. Now, a plurality of priests now is shown to be a weakness, while the power of one is a strength. The lack of an oath now is put together with a plurality of priests, which is a weakness. So on top of this, on the one hand, that is regarding the first priest of the Levitical order, many became priests by reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office. Death isn't an obstacle to Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and defeated death. In other words, but he, verse 24, the priest forever, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent non-transferable priesthood, a parabaton. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come through him, through him, the infinitely superior realized hope to God. He lives to make intercession for them always. Now the descriptor that he uses for his priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is aparabaton and it means incapable of passing away. It's a synonym for amatathaton, 
from Hebrews 6.17 and Amatathaton in Hebrews 6.20 as descriptive of the oath-fortified promise to Abraham linked with the oath-backed oracle to Jesus as a priest forever. Now, in 723, and this is kind of an aside that just comes to mind now that may not be in the notes, death, I've capitalized. Now, the reason that death is capitalized, as it is in Romans, is Paul considered death itself to be a personal, suprahuman enemy of God, of Christ, and of Christians. Now, it's been argued that Hebrews doesn't have this so-called apocalyptic view of things. But I think here is one example of how death is kind of personalized as it is in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. As it is also in other places in Hebrews. Death, therefore, should be capitalized here in the sense that it is a suprahuman enemy speaking apocalyptically. So I'm just trying to say that, that the Hebrews writer was not unacquainted with apocalyptic language and using apocalyptic terms and using the term death and even sin in the apocalyptic sense. In Hebrews 9.26, Jesus appeared once at the end of the ages or the climax of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Sin there may also be perceived in its Pauline apocalyptic sense. That's just an aside. Maybe we'll develop it later. I'm not sure if it will be inherently essential to our commentary at Hebrews or not, but nevertheless, there it is. Hebrews 7.23 then to reread. On top of this, that is on top of the fact that there was no oath accompanying Levitical priesthood's appointment. On top of that, on the one hand, many became priests. Plurality becomes a reason for weakness by reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office. But he, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent non-transferable priesthood. Therefore, he is able, not they, he. His once and for all sacrifice also is able, not their many animal sacrifices. He, and not priests who discontinue because of death, not the many who discontinue because of death. He, who continues because he lives forever, is able to save completely those who come through him to God. We've shown in two different increments in the past, recent past, those who come to God through him ultimately is all of humanity. He lives to make intercession for them always, always, always. Even as Jesus is our great archpriest and advocate in front of the Father, so the Holy Spirit is with us always as our advocate in the interiority of our being. So the rocket analogy, a metaphor on the level of our time, works with respect to the Levitical priesthood as a stage of the rocket which needed to be disengaged and let go. It also works with respect to the animal sacrifices, which is a stage which falls away, as we saw in Hebrews 6.4, to allow the second payload stage to go on to completion of its mission. The second stage 
which remains, is what I call USSJC, universally saving significance of Jesus Christ in his universally saving death on the cross because of his universally saving death. So I put it also UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, the once and for all forever sacrifice of Christ by which sin was expiated, removed, annulled, done away with, made no longer to be. So the final thing I'll ask today is whether Christ as the Lamb of God, whether the title of Christ as simply the Lamb is sufficient to cover and be the fulfillment and superseding of all the animal sacrifices. In other words, if there were bulls and goats and turtle doves and many other kinds of sacrifices, is the simple reduced term, the lamb, sufficient to cover all these sacrifices? That's a question that was posed and answered by Aquinas, incidentally, and one which we will ask and answer in our own way. The verse under prolonged consideration in Hebrews, ever since 5.6 of Hebrews, and then more earnestly throughout Hebrews 7, also falls by stages. Now, it doesn't mean the word of God falls, but it means the exegesis using Hebrews or Psalm 110.4 falls off. The verse is kind of like falls off little by little in its use in Hebrews. So we have the whole verse first, including the oath. Then we have part of the verse and then we have the accent on the single assuring word forever in Hebrews 7.24. The author deals then with Hebrews, or rather with Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, like squeezing a toothpaste tube until the last bit emerges. The last little bit is the word forever, which describes two things, the indestructible life, and tenure of Jesus, our great archpriest, and, secondly, the efficacy of his sacrifice, which is the once and for all, unrepeatable and forever efficacious offering of himself to put away sin. And that's what happens right in the middle of the micro-apocalypse of the three appearings in Hebrews 9.24 to 28. More and more, I'm leaning toward 926 of Hebrews as perhaps the essential essence of the entire homily. Christ appeared once in the climax or the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Thank you, Father, for another increment, and may this particular increment of study challenge us to be more attentive to the word of God and challenge us not to become drifters but true disciples who leave off all demands and listen. We ask this and ask for this grace and receive it with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.